0: Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the Word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Not last week because Pastor Adam uh, preached last week a little bit on discipleship and Alpha, and I want to I want to also uh, encourage you here in terms of Alpha. Alpha is not just for brand new Christians. Alpha is not just for those that uh, maybe have questions about who Jesus is. Alpha is for everyone. I really want to just make a kind of a big push for that. If you've been serving Jesus for decades now, uh, I think Alpha is a great fit for you. If Alpha, if uh, all of those things that Adam talked about last week, um, just want to encourage each and every one of us to be a part of this journey as we ask some tough questions, as we Dig into, this, into uh, just uh, who God is and see what God does with that. But Adam had the privilege of preaching last week, laying out a little bit of that. And we had to do, we had to, we got to do some baptisms and it was uh, just a lot of fun. But it, it kind of disconnected me and I, I struggled to remember about what I preached the week before. Um, I, is that bad to admit right now? Do you guys remember what I preached two weeks ago? Something about God. Something about God. There we go. No. <laughs> I preached on Naaman the leper, if you guys remember. And we talked about uh, his cleansing and, his, uh, and, and what God did in his life. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. We were in the Old Testament there, and we were observing Naaman's story. He was a Syrian general that uh, had wild success in a, in a military capacity, He was basically second in command in Syria, but he was a leper. Uh, Scripture says that he was a a mighty man of valor, that he had all these military exploits. He was evidently very, 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 very wealthy, but he was a leper, and leprosy in the ancient world was uh, essentially just get ready to die. It was a miserable thing that uh, we kind of walked through and we looked at some of that, but we understand from that story that he did find healing by coming to the prophet Elisha and uh, getting um, getting some instruction for him from him. And he went down into the Jordan River, he dipped seven times, and wound up uh, being cured of his leprosy. It was this powerful story, but. One of the things that we really kind of jumped into there was the greater miracle of the healing of Naaman's pride, um, even more so than his healing of leprosy. Because Naaman first shows up on the scene. He's got his entire entourage with him. He's got like $1.2 million uh, worth of silver and, and gold and precious metals and jewels that he shows up to the prophet's house with thinking that he can surely entice the the man of God to come out and wave his hand over him and invoke the name of the Lord and cause the leprosy to be cleansed. But Elijah doesn't even get up off his couch, right? He doesn't even bother to open the door. In fact, he sends his messenger, he sends a servant outside to give the instruction to Naaman. Hey dude, just go wash in the Jordan. Go dip in that dirty river down there and you'll be good to go. And Naaman's pride uh, just kind of infuriates him because God didn't heal him the way that he wanted him to. God didn't do what Naaman wanted him to do in the way that he wanted him to do it. He had this unmet expectation, and so he grows frustrated, and he starts saying, oh, I'm just blah, 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 blah. And he has a servant... I can't look at my friends when I'm preaching because they're just like, you did what? <laughs> yeah, that was, that's, that's in there somewhere. Um, no, he has a servant that calls Naaman out on his stupidity, saying, Naaman, you are going to die unless you find a cure. You have leprosy. If the man of God would have told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he told you to do was go wash in the Jordan. What do you have to lose, basically? That was the title of my message last week. And so Naaman uh, eventually does go down and he dips seven times in the river. He finds healing. And it's this powerful thing, right? He's cured of his leprosy. And he comes back to the man of God. He comes back to Elijah with uh, all of the jewels and all of the money and uh, says, uh, I have discovered that there is no other God other than the God of Israel. And it's this powerful kind of story, but it, it ends with Naaman overwhelmed with gratitude, worshiping the Lord. But in 5.16, we, experience, we see this one verse, and it says this, but he said, as the Lord lives before whom, I'm, before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, he being Naaman, but Elisha refused. I want to, this one verse here sets up for what we're going to be talking about today. And it has massive ramifications for the rest of the story. Because we're going to look at a different character in this whole narrative, and that would be the tragic story of Elijah's servant, Gehazi. And I, I, want to, I just want to reiterate here, um, because we see here with Naaman, we see with Elijah. Uh, We see uh, Naaman bringing all of this money, uh, the equivalent of today's wealth of $1.2 million, trying to honor the man of God out of gratitude, sincere thanks for what God did. But Elijah, the man of God, refuses to take any kind of reward for what God did. And arguably, Elijah really didn't do anything, right? He was sitting on his couch. He didn't even come out and talk to the guy. And so... Maybe, maybe that's what was going through his head. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I want us to look at the story of Gehazi. But before we get there, I want to remind us of uh, Elisha with an S. I, I have such a hard time pronouncing these names, like with distinction. Um, and uh, I, want you to, I want to remind you of Elisha's relationship with his master, Elijah. And so this is where we're going to go on a little bit of an Old Testament history lesson here as we get into what I believe the Lord has in store for us today. Because Elisha, with an S, was a faithful servant to Elijah. He followed him devoutly right up until the point where Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire into heaven, and right before that we see Elijah present Elisha with a question. And it's found, the whole account of this is found in 2 Kings chapter two. But uh, particularly, I wanna look at verse nine where it says this, this is Elijah saying, and so it was when they had crossed over, they crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. uh, Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elijah said, please let a double portion of your spirit be Upon me. And so this is an interesting account in scripture. We have Elijah who is following his master Elijah, and at the end of Elijah's life, right before he gets taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire, he kind of leads. Elijah on this wild goose chase; they go all over the place, and I, I don't know if he's trying to like lose Elijah and just get him to like uh, just stop following him. But he proves his devoutfulness and his faithfulness. And Elijah asks him this question: "What may I do for you?" And Elijah asks this very kind of intriguing, um, or Elijah asks for this very intriguing thing, where he says, "I want a double portion of your spirit." Now it's interesting because if we break down the miracles that Elijah did in his ministry, right, where he's calling down prophets, uh, where he's calling down fire on the prophets of Baal, and all this crazy stuff uh, on Mount Carmel, it, it, it's interesting here that First and Second Kings documents seven miracles to the prophet Elijah. If we're going to walk through First and Second, if we're going to walk through Second Kings and look at the ministry of Elisha. Uh, we document 14. And then if you look into other other extra-biblical sources, um, which I wouldn't recommend, uh, they say that it's 8 and 16. Um, It's just one of those interesting things. But I really want you to know this. I do not believe that the double portion aspect of what uh, is happening here is the doubling of miracles. I don't believe that... Elisha was asking his master, Elijah, I want more fame and notoriety, and I want to do twice as many miracles as you ever did in order to carry on the mantle of the prophet in Israel. That's not what's taking place here. When he's asking for a double portion, he was asking for a father's blessing as a firstborn son. He was asking to receive power to fulfill his calling as the prophet's successor. This idea of double portion stems from Deuteronomy. and You can read it in Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 where this idea of the firstborn son receiving a double portion of an inheritance. And so this idea of a double portion was not to ask for twice as much as Elijah had but to ask for the portion that went to the firstborn son. And as I'm reading this and as I'm looking at their relationship, I see that it's so much more than Elijah just being a servant to Elijah. But we see this kind of, uh, we, we see this father figure in, the prophet of, uh, in this prophet Elijah as he is leading this prophet uh, Elijah. And we see this idea of a double portion. And I said this, that Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, not his possession not his possessions. The greatest inheritance we can leave the next generation is not found in our bank accounts, but in heavenly equity. I, I, I so believe this, friends, because I think there's a lot of us that live with the mentality that if we grind hard enough and we put enough money in the bank and we've got things saved away for a rainy day and we set up our families for success, that we're doing the will of the Lord. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard. I'm not saying that we shouldn't save. I'm not saying that we shouldn't live with uh, those things in mind. But at the end of the day, I want to make my ceiling for loving Jesus my boy's floor. If that makes any kind of sense for you. I, I, I pray that what my boys get to see when it comes to serving the Lord far surpasses the things that I dream about. I want my boys to have a rich inheritance that comes with loving Jesus, not just from a place where God, where, where dad was smart with his money and he was able to save away. And, and you know what? He, he, he put us through college or something like that. I so desire for my sons to receive from me a passion for Jesus that will set them on a trajectory to have a double portion of what I ever had. And I'm living my life with the intent to get as much of Jesus as I possibly can. To grow as close to Jesus as I possibly can. To experience Jesus as closely as possible. But my prayer still at the end of the day is that my kids would surpass that. That they would see something in their dad of integrity. That they would see something in me of hunger and passion for Jesus. And it would serve as a catalyst for saying, I want that and then some. I want them to love Jesus and bring more glory to him than I ever dared to dream of. That's what I would consider success. (coughs) Because I look at this relationship with Elijah and Elijah. Elijah had his eyes and his heart set on what really mattered, being the kingdom of God. Because he was here, his master was getting taken up. He could have easily been like, yo, Elijah, can you give me a double portion the firstborn blessing of, you know, all the stuff that you have. Elijah probably didn't have that much stuff, real, realistically, but that's not where his mind was. That's not what he was after. He, he had followed this man. He had seen his walk with God and says, I want that and then some. The Lord was faithful and responded uh, and, and clearly granted that to Elijah But this parallels in pretty stark contrast to the behavior of Gehazi, Elijah's servant. He would have logically served to been Elijah's successor. So today I want to talk to you about the missed potential of Gehazi. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 17, we pick up the story. It says, so Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimnon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimnon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord bless or may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said, "Go in peace." So he departed from him a short distance. So this was uh, the encounter between Naaman and Elisha, where he has Elisha has rejected receiving a gift from Naaman, and Naaman is so concerned about making sure that he honors the Lord, the God of Israel. We have this kind of interesting encounter here, where he's asking, "Well, can I bring some ground back?" so I can worship the Lord God there because he still was very much uh, not a Jew. <laughs> he didn't understand what it meant to worship the God of Israel, but we see here that Elijah blesses him, tells him to go in peace, and he only departs a short distance before we pick up the story in verse 20 where we read, but Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, look, my master has spared in the Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments." So Naaman said, "'Please take two talents.' And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house, and then he let them in go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elijah said to him, "'Where did you go, Gehazi?' And he said, "'Your servant did not go anywhere.' Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. Pretty tragic downfall. Right, Pretty tragic ending to this otherwise really great story of what God had done in the life of Naaman, where we saw leprosy healed, where we see all this powerful move of God just happen. And this is remarkable to me because it seems like God is always moving. And even in the midst of God doing miraculous, powerful things, people are still as stupid as Gehazi. And they're willing to throw it all away for what Jesus would call the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. You know, when you're a kid and somebody tells you that you have potential, it's typically a good thing, right? You could be a, you know, a pretty good athlete, you know, maybe a running back on the football team and maybe you'll have people say, man, you know what? That kid's got potential, he's going places. When somebody tells you you have potential when you're in your 30s or your 40s or your middle age, it doesn't doesn't quite hit the same, right? Somebody's like, man, Nate, you've got potential to be a a good snowboarder, and I've been doing it for like 15 years. It's like, (laughs) means that I've not lived up to something, right? (laughs) When somebody says, well, he's got potential, and he's this middle-aged man that's still living at his family's house in their basement playing xbox it's not necessarily a positive thing right sometimes you look at a project or a vehicle and be like oh that's got potential really it just means it's a lot of work (laughs) Gehazi had great potential to be a powerful prophet of the lord imagine if his motivation was pure Can I tell you, potential means nothing. It's worthless. It's even self-condemning when that potential is left unmet. Because all we're saying is that you had the capacity to do something, but you didn't do it. And I look at... Everything in Gehazi's life, it was set up for success. I want, to, I want you to wrap your mind around this. If if Elijah could receive a double portion from Elijah because he was devout and he was faithful and he had his mind and his heart set on the right things, how much more of an impact could Gehazi have made if he would have received a double portion from his master, Elijah? We're talking he could have exponentially a larger portion than what Elijah initially had. Right? Because right. you start doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. You get to some pretty big numbers. Now look at Gehazi and I'm grieved because I read this story. If you read about Elijah's exploits, you read about the servant of Elijah that was with him. It doesn't always name him as Gehazi, but most scholars believe every time that it mentions a servant throughout 2 Kings that was there with, uh, with Elijah, or with Elijah, that it was probably Gehazi. We know that he saw the dead raised. He saw miraculous things happen. He was present with the man of God. It's a clear case of having the best teachers, good circumstances. Gehazi still blows it. I need you to understand what you do in this life, your success is not contingent upon your family or who you're pastor is. I see a lot of great men and women of God. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm sorry. But if we look at the passage of scripture here in 2 Kings chapter 5, it's often referred to as the greed of Gehazi. But that greed had to begin somewhere. It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't just a brief moment of weakness where Gehazi made a mistake. We see that demonstrated in the fact on how he kept up with the lie, right? He kept going back and forth and uh, he's just brazenly making up stuff, right? He shows up to Naaman and says, oh yeah, these two dudes just showed up and we need some help. Uh, Could you you help us out? Just, Just pulls it, fabricates it out of Air has no problem spitting off a lie like that. He comes back, he gets called out. Uh, uh, Elijah is like, Hey, dude, where were you? And he blazingly, brazenly, bra- <laughs> brazenly just says to him, Nah, your servant didn't go anywhere. <laughs> it's, a, it's like, man, he is like committed to this lie that didn't happen overnight. Men of God don't fall overnight. People walk away from the truth gradually, not abruptly. It's kind of what we understand to be a slippery slope, right? It's this one small step, but eventually it ends in catastrophic failure. And that's what we see here with this uh, servant Gehazi. I want to talk about finishing well today because we understand this Christianity thing is a marathon, not a sprint. How many of us know or have friends that that, that started out doing well following Jesus, but today they couldn't be farther from him? It's not about how we start. It's about how we finish. Isn't this what Jesus would talk about? He even tells a parable about this, right? Uh, Where the master comes and instructs one of his servants or sons, and now I'm drawing a blank on the story there. But he says, hey, go do, do, do this and this and this. And then one kid goes out and says, I'll do it, dad, or I'll do it, master. And then he doesn't do it. But then the other servant says, no, I'm not going to do it. But then he does do it. Which one actually did the will of the father? Uh, it was the one that said he wouldn't, but then eventually did. It's not about how we start. It's about how we finish. Mm-hmm. I need you to understand that because all of us have some pretty colorful paths, probably. We could swap stories and Probably be surprised we can make Netflix documentaries about those of us here in this room where we had rocky starts, where things probably didn't look like they were going to turn out okay. But at the end of the day, it's not about how we start, it's about how we finish and if we're finishing well. I want to make sure, friends, at the end of this age when I stand before my God that that I'm not hearing, depart from me. I never knew you. I want to make sure that I hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to hear that word done. I want to know that I finished well. I want to, the, I want to have the mentality of Paul. What well, the end of his life wrote to his spiritual son Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I I believe in order to do that, there's some safeguards that we have to implement in our lives. There are some things that we need to be aware of because we, we have to understand there's a real enemy that does not want us to succeed, that does not want to see you finish well, that would so much rather your testimony be tarnished because you stumbled and you fell and you never got back up. So I want to hit on a few things just uh, briefly um, that prevent us from finishing well. Things Gehazi struggled with that I believe eventually led to his downfall. And the first of those things being what Jesus would, be, would eventually call the cares of this world. I have friends in Bible college that are not following Jesus today. And for a while, I really struggled with reconciling this because we sat in the same sermons, we read the same books, we were in the same services, we saw God do the same miracles. There are friends today that have denounced Jesus that I walked hand in hand with when we saw deaf people here for the first time, where we saw blind eyes opened at a summer camp where we heard the gospel preached, where we saw God do these crazy, intense, marvelous things. We had the same experiences where we felt the Holy Spirit, where we filled these altars with tears. There are friends of mine today that prayed at this altar, this same altar that I prayed at when I first stepped into Pagosa Springs 12 years ago and told God if he ever wanted me here, I would be here. They were here with me at that same time where we experienced the Lord that are not following Jesus today. And I, I, I've struggled with this. I, I've wrestled with this. And it's crazy to me how easy it is for some people to turn away from the truth. But it shouldn't shock me. It shouldn't come as a surprise to me because Jesus warned, it, warned us of this. He said it would be this way. In Jesus' parable of the sower, he talks about the thorns that choke out the word that's implanted in us. And in Mark chapter 4, you should read the whole context of this parable. But for the sake of time today, I'm going to focus in just on on a few verses here. But in verse 18 and 19, it says, Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. This is a particularly convicting passage for me this week as I just struggled with and wrestled with the Lord about some of my passions and some of my hobbies. And, you know, I was introduced to somebody this week as a guy that gets really good deals on Jeeps. And it just kind of startled me in the sense that I don't want to be known as the guy that gets good deals on Jeeps. I want to be known as the guy that's passionate about Jesus above anything and everything else. I have passions. I have hobbies. I have too many hobbies. Being honest, guys, the the season is shifting and I'm thinking about snowmobiling and I'm excited about it because it's a new hobby for me and it's a lot of fun and if you haven't done it, I'll take you out and try not to break your leg. It'll be a great time. There's a story behind that, but uh, I love hobbies. I have a lot of them. I love, I have a lot of passions, if you will. You guys know me, I love Frisbee. I love Jeeps. I love finding good deals. There's all kinds of things now. I like fishing, and and I I I just that's my I have an addictive personality, I guess you might say, when it comes to trying new things, and maybe just a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, and it's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and if I'm being honest, I have a lot of passions and hobbies and desires for things that aren't Jesus, that aren't explicitly. Holy. I'm not saying they're evil. Like I'm not going out like gambling or like getting crunk on the weekends or something like that. That's not a a passion of mine. But I do have passions and desires for things that aren't of Jesus. And it's this constant battle that uh, I have to make sure that I'm being engaged with. Otherwise, snowboarding and Jeeps will take precedence over Jesus in my life. And I I have to be at least cognizant and aware of the fact that there are things that really, at the end of the day, don't matter that much. See, it would be easy and natural for me to prioritize photography as a way to make some more money to buy some more stuff step away and maybe not focus on ministry like I should be easy for me to neglect the call of God and kind of go these different routes. And I think so many people do this. And I want to be clear, it, this, isn't a, this isn't the place in the sermon where I try to make you feel guilty for having nice things and tell you you need to go sell all your stuff and bring it to the church and, uh, and give a large donation or something like that. Now, honestly, uh, I say this because I, I've made this joke before, um, but I I say this in all seriousness. I do think the Lord probably calls people to sell all that they own and give it to the poor or, or give it to the Lord like they did in the book of Acts. And I just think that there's too few of us that are willing to listen that intently. But I'm not saying that he's doing that to you today. I'm not saying that that's what he's asking, but I just, I I need you to understand, it's not evil to have other passions. It's not evil to have money in the bank. It's not evil to have nice things. But when those passions and when those things and when that money has a hold of you, it's definitely a problem. Does that make sense? Because I'm not saying that Jesus is anti-stuff. He is, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. (laughs) He is, uh, turn your back on this world and follow me. But I need you to understand, he's not anti-nice things. He's not, uh, everybody that has nice things somehow isn't the enemy. But what I believe the greater problem is, is there's a lot of people with nice things with a lot of money and that lot of money and those nice things and those other passions have a hold of them rather than them having those things. I hope that that makes sense. It makes sense in my mind, but uh, sorry. (laughs) The cares and the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for inferior things, they're all manifestations of a lack of trust in God. What we're doing is we're essentially saying we don't trust in God's goodness and in his intentions or his ability or willingness to provide for us. Jesus is using, Jesus's, <laughs> just Jesus. Uh, Jesus uses, wow, that's what I'm trying to say. Jesus uses this word unfruitful in this passage of scripture, right? Where he says, it becomes unfruitful. It says, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and therefore it becomes unfruitful. It's not that the word isn't there. It's not that the word isn't evident. It's not present in the person's life. It's just the fact that it's unfruitful. But unfruitful is another way of saying unmet potential, is it not? not. And I, I believe that Jesus is pretty severe when it comes to talking about unfruitfulness. You look at some of the things that he says, he takes a pretty hardline stance on unfruitfulness. In Matthew seven nineteen, he says this, uh, he says that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's imperative, friends, that we are bearing fruit. I look at Gehazi, and I think he felt some sense of entitlement to receive from Naaman based upon what what God did. I mean, Gehazi didn't cure him, but I'm I'm wondering maybe if he was the messenger that Elijah sent to to him at first to give him instruction. I don't know, but but Gehazi was present for a lot of these miracles, and I wonder if maybe he was just feeling a little like, left out um, and I think this is a particularly dangerous trap for those of us that have been serving the Lord for any period or amount of time um, I think it's easy for us to kind of live with this mentality like God owes us something that we deserve something from the Lord in fact one of the great travesties and tragedies of the last couple of years was um, Ravi Zacharias um, was a man of God that I highly respected that I I read his books and I I listened to his teachings and uh, just thought that he was an excellent communicator, a very smart, intelligent man. And it came out after the fact that he had passed away that the last number of years of his life, he was living in just terrible sin. He was going to massage parlors and doing unquestionable things and and, uh, having these very, these questionable things. Uh, (laughs) you, You should question them. Uh, <laughs> these questionable things, and uh, just was all these accusations that came out after the fact, and after a, a report came out, um, it was just very, very disturbing. And at one point in time, he was in a uh, in a in a relationship with a young lady, very promiscuous, and don't need to get into details there, but. His justification for the sin, his justification for his relationship with these uh, these women was the fact that they were God's reward for his life of faithfulness. And I can't imagine how brokenhearted the Lord felt when he heard that. But This was a man that was so deceived and so, so... so deceived and bound by sin that he probably genuinely believed what he was saying. And I just, I I want you to know, friends, there is nothing that God owes you. I don't care how long you've served him. I don't care how much money you've given in an offering or how many days you've put in In service at the church, we're not entitled to anything from the Lord. In fact, the only thing that we're entitled to as humanity from the Lord is judgment based upon the way that we live our life. Now, thankfully, there is grace. Thankfully, He has stepped in. But the entitlement culture of our generation is terrifying. It's, It's absolutely terrifying. But Jesus' call to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me, stands in defiance of that sense of entitlement. And I, I just want I, I to be clear here. The fact that Gehazi felt like he was owed something for being used by God and for serving God is a terrifying thing, but it's one that we as Christians must be guarded against because we do not serve the Lord in order to get something from him. All of these TV preachers that talk about make sure that you put in your your seed money or your tithe money or these things so you can reap a benefit and God can bless you with a million dollars or give you a Bentley or so that you could give to get. That is not why we serve Jesus whether it be with your finances or whether it be with your life, we do not give to get from him. Yes, he's a good father that blesses his children. Yes, he does pour out favor upon those who are in right standing and walk with him, but under no circumstance, under no, uh, under no, mm, we're not following Jesus to get something from him. We're following Jesus because he's worthy. And I think the most appropriate thing for us to do to combat this sense of entitlement is to practice thanksgiving. It's what Paul would say in First Thessalonians five, sixteen and eighteen. He would instruct us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to in everything give thanks you'd say, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I started thinking about when I first said yes to the Lord. Because I began to follow Jesus, not for what he could do for me, but for what he already did for me. Yeah. And I think in our culture, we, there's this great travesty, there's this great mistake that we've made where we've perpetuated the gospel as if you come to Jesus, he's going to make every wrong thing in your life better. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but a lot of people come to Jesus with the mentality of what can I get from him? I used this example when I was talking about baptism with my friend Jeff this last week, and I, I, I described Jesus as not being a condiment. We, we, we think of Jesus oftentimes as something we can add to our life to make our life a little bit better. Kind of like a bottle of hot sauce. You know, I, I know my friends over here, they make really good hot sauce. And uh, I have this bottle of 7-5. It's like one of the last bottles of hot sauce that you guys ever made. And I take it with me. I take it around with me. I put it on my pizza and stuff like that because it's, it makes things better. It's a flavor enhancer. And it's just good. And I've had times where I had tacos without salsa or without hot sauce. And I'm just like, there's something missing. And I need to add it to make it better. But that's what we treat Jesus as sometimes. We're like, hey, just try a little bit of Jesus with what you've already got going on. But that was never what was intended. He never intended for that to be an option, to try a little Jesus, just add it to what's going on. It was always this invitation to forsake all to follow him. Jesus has always been the main course, not a condiment, if that makes sense. Uh, And that's where we see these inferior other desires and other passions creep in to choke out the word. Mark four nineteen. it says, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so I, I think the, the, the way that I would like to end this morning is to pray for us. That we'd be guarded against these things deceitfulness of riches. And there were plenty of people that had a lot of money. Naaman had a lot of money and it wasn't doing anything for his condition. There's plenty of people that have a lot of money and have chased the almighty dollar and wind up empty and broken. I know a lot of friends that have walked away from the call of God on their life because of the cares of this world. The responsibilities that exist with, oh man, now I'm a dad. Now I'm a father and, man, I can't do that whole sold out to Jesus thing. I got to get a real job. I think one of the greatest dangers for us Is the allowance of inferior desires to get in the way of passion for Jesus. Not even evil ones. Like I said, guys, I love snowboarding. I love, you know, being outside. I love Jeeps and these things. And it's startling to me when I think of the fact that my identity could be so easily wrapped up in any one of these things. Then all of a sudden, Jesus isn't the most important thing. Mm-hmm. In Psalm 27, David would pray, he would sing, he would write this. Verse 4, he says, One thing I have desired of the Lord. That will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.